As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague, Stuart Mandel. Stu, this is one of my favorite weeks of the football calendar. It is Combine Week. I'm excited to go to Indianapolis soon. In a little bit, we're going to have the athletics draft guru, Dane Brugler, on. We'll break down a lot of the big talking points and storylines to keep an eye on out of Indy. But before we get to that, before we get to the mailbag later on in the podcast, um, I know how much you love realignment, and there's a little bit of chatter, maybe a lot of chatter out of the ACC. It's not the first time Florida State folks or Florida State brass has kind of piped up. What do we need to know? It was a really interesting development on Friday that I thought flew under the radar a little bit, maybe because it was on a Friday, but Florida State's athletic director... This is often the case um, where the athletic director has to give a presentation uh, to the Board of Regents, just kind of a regularly scheduled thing, um, just an update on what's going on with athletics. It's usually um, pretty uneventful. But Michael Alford from Florida State went and and raised eyebrows. He made some pretty um, bold comments or, or maybe noteworthy comments that indicated that Florida State is not happy with its situation in the ACC. We all know that their deal that they made with ESPN in 2016 has become kind of an albatross. It's locked them in for 20 years um, when other conferences like the Big Ten, actually all the conferences are coming up for TV deals before them. The big quote was, we cannot be $30 million behind every year compared to our peers. I watched a video of it. They He actually put up on the screen on this Zoom a list of all the... T- um, conferences and their television contracts, some of which was data I had not seen before. Um, you know, some of it's publicly known, some of it was not. And so he's he's hinting strongly that, um, you know, if we, if something doesn't change, he doesn't come out and say it, but we need to get out of the ACC. The problem is their grant of rights that they've signed through 2036, most people think would be impossible, almost impossible to get out of. So I'm not sure. I think 
that this was a an attempt and Thompson, by the way, has has you know he he's talking about how they bring way more of the value to the ACC than the share that they get. It's unequal revenue distribution. They want to do what the Pac-10 used to do back in the day, the Big 12 used to do. They all have since moved to equal revenue sharing, but that wasn't always the case in some of these conferences. I bet if USC had gotten unequal revenue sharing, maybe they'd still be in the Pac-12. I do think it's not like, this is anecdotal, but if you look even at like conference championship uh, week, the ACC was by far fifth of the power five. It was actually closer to the AAC than the than it was to even the Pac-12. Now, obviously you can say playoff implications were on that. It was also opposite the Big Ten title game. But in terms of a, like a, it feels like this is definitely not the first time Florida State brass has been irked about its lot in the ACC, right? I mean, I feel like this has happened a few times in the last like five years, right? Oh, I would go back even longer than that um, to, to the 2011-2012 wave. Like they always, I feel like there's always some gnashing of teeth that they're stuck in the ACC, but then the next deal comes up and they sign it. Um, to your point, the ACC as we know, it's very top heavy on the field and it's very top heavy in the ratings. I feel like there's about 10, 11 teams, you know, the Syracuse's, the Virginia's, whatnot, Georgia Tech's, that nobody's tuning in to watch those teams. Now, when Clemson is, you know, national title hunt, number one, number two, number three, you know, games of significance for the playoff, people watch those. And certainly when Florida State was rolling uh, back heyday or even you know but more recently Jameis winston you know they're a big national brand and that's what he's talking about in that presentation but there's a reason the acc probably is about to be fifth out of five in in tv value so i mean obviously florida state would much rather be in the sec making sec money but he was asked by one of the board members what it would cost to get out of the acc and he said it would be about 120 million dollars which is a lot, but I don't actually think that's the full extent of it. I think that is the exit fee, just like um, you know Maryland had to pay an exit fee when they left for the Big Ten. The grant of rights that you always hear talked about is literally a contract where you surrender your TV rights to the conference. Theirs have been surrendered through 2036. If you wanted to get them back, uh, how many years early are we talking? 13 years early? That would be nobody knows what the exact number would be, but it would be a lot more than 120 million. And so for somebody to actually do it to try to get out, I mean, they're going to have to take the ACC to court and try to make the argument that. I don't know what the argument would be, but some sort of argument to get out of the grant of rights. Nobody in college sports to this point has ever tried to break a grant of rights early. I'd be curious if you would look at the last like five years, how many times Florida State games I know it happened with the opener. It was a Sunday night game against, uh, or it was a off night game against uh, LSU. Obviously, it was a competitive, compelling game. But there, I don't think there's been that many t- instances where an FSU game is ranked in like the top five of that week. Well, no, I mean because they haven't been very good up until this past year. The well, they were good this past year. Yeah, and you're but they lost three in a row pretty early on, and it just kind of. The last huge mega Florida State game I remember was the opener against Alabama in 2017. And I believe that, you know, that was like number two versus number three, right? That was a a massive game. 
But no, I mean, the reality is, look, even when Clemson, you know, go back to like Trevor Lawrence, uh, uh, Travis Etienne, which is not that long ago. I remember looking at the ratings for the one of those seasons and their 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 highest rated game was when they played Texas A&M. You know, people weren't tuning in to watch them, you know, beat the crap out of Boston College. So um, it's interesting because one week. Week eight, actually, Syracuse Clemson was the top rated game of what I think was a pretty watered down schedule slate. Um, it got 4.75 million viewers, which is huge for a Syracuse game. It was a noon window. Um, after that, it was Texas, Oklahoma State. And after that, it was Iowa, Ohio State. Those are the games over 4 million. So it's like, it's interesting that game led the week, but that was definitely an outlier because then once you get past that, I think you got a, you know, Florida State. It doesn't help that Miami and Florida State both went down, and Miami's still down. You know, it's just the games that would that would get people watching from them just aren't there right now. As time goes by, I remember when they first announced that there was going to be an ACC network. So the ACC network launched in 2019. So it would have been a few years before that. You know, at that point, cord cutting was was a real thing, had been for several years. And I remember thinking, why are you launching a linear cable network now? And 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 what's the appeal? Because Florida, because uh, as we've just talked about, ACC football is not a must watch. And the answer I got back was basketball. Like, mm-hmm. that's why ESPN wanted to do it, because people watch Duke, they watch UNC, they watch a bunch of those teams. Uh, and you can't put all those games on on regular ESPN. But the concession the ACC made to get that network is become a huge huge issue with with no easy answer out the ESPN has no incentive to renegotiate that contract and the teams don't have much recourse to do anything about it so he he went public with this for a reason uh you know it's definitely seemed like he was making a threat and so now we'll see what happens from there but you know to this point We've been so focused on the on the Pac-12 and their TV deal and will the Big 12 steal their teams and whatnot. And it's like, oh, there's all this drama going over here as well. You know, what's interesting to me, you mentioned, you know, uh, and we think about this and if anybody who works for a TV company has inventory um, in terms of the ACC, which has been such a known as a basketball league for so long. There's definitely been a big change of the guard in terms of the coaches. Obviously, you know, Roy Williams at North Carolina. Um, Jim Beheim's still hanging on, but it seems like it's been kind of an embarrassment for him, you know, for a while. You had Coach K step down, and now John Shire's there. Um, Virginia's still good, but if you look at this... You're having um, a bad year. Yeah, I mean, right now, the, the top four teams in the league, Pitt, Miami, UVA, not surprising, and then Clemson. Yeah, the ACC's having a really bad year in basketball now, as you know. None of that, Matt. You get in the tournament... Like the Big Ten, I think, is going to get like eight or nine teams in. I hate to say this, but the fact that my alma mater is, I think, tied for second does not speak well to the Big Ten for me. And so I could see them getting in and like, you know, the ACC doesn't get many teams, but two of them go on a run to the Elite Eight or something. And then a bunch of Big Ten teams lose the first week. And that's all anybody will remember. But no, I don't I don't think anybody thinks that conference is in great shape. But I feel like basketball, the cycles like Pitt for one, right? I think it was only a few years ago. Pitt was just absolute, absolutely awful when they, after they hired Kevin Stallings and here they are a few years later, first place in the conference. So basketball tends to be more cyclical. Louisville was absolutely awful in basketball. 
four and 25, a national championship, you know, but they had a, you know, they fired Chris Mack in the middle of the year last year. Hey, this isn't a basketball podcast. Okay. We don't need to go on that tangent. But, okay. um, you know, I think keep an eye on that storyline over the next year or so, because if something's going to happen in terms of those schools trying to find a way to get like, it just can't go on forever. You know, it's not healthy for the league if you have a couple of members who are just so unhappy. And we saw that anything can be negotiated, right? OU in Texas, they found a way out early. Things can be negotiated if it gets to that. So um, switching gears, um, you had an interesting story go up on The Athletic on Monday about a program that doesn't get a lot of coverage in national outlets. Tell us about William and Mary. Yeah, it, it's funny. This story has almost been like five years in the making for me. Um, a long time ago, I was trying to look at some coaches who I felt like would be guys who were ready to na- take the next big step up or people who sh- you know should be on, who are doing some really, um, really cool things at the FCS and smaller division levels. And Christian Taylor was a guy who I started to look at. And he was at the University of San Diego and we had talked a couple of times. And then it just kind of like, I don't know, I, I kind of moved on. I don't remember. I didn't remember exactly what happened. And then he got to William and Mary and I was like, wow, they're really rushing the ball. Because back when he was at University of San Diego, which is a non-scholarship program, I think they were the first non-scholarship program to win an FCS playoff game. And they won a couple of them, which is a big statement when you're talking about basically a program full of walk-ons against teams with a lot of scholarship guys. So he got to William and Mary and they run the heck out of the ball. And I was like, well, what are they doing? You know, what's changed. And so they have some really funky stuff. And so this story, and I knew it would kind of resonate with some people just because when you watch one of the plays they had, which I think was the coolest looking play that worked um, by design in 2022. And if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to just even look at the video on my timeline. You'll want to read the story because it's a wrinkle off of a wrinkle that they have put in and they have other stuff that kind of flows from it. It's just a really fascinating deal. And William and Mary, if you don't know, is in the, in the colonial athletic and it is the CAA has always been a breeding ground for great football coaches. So many guys have come from there at one point or another. Now, William and Mary is also the place, you know, where Mike Tomlin is from and Sean McDermott, and a bunch of big time coaches. But if you want, what is interesting is like, this is a guy who is now on a lot of colleges radar and Mario Cristobal actually seriously considered hiring him this off season. And I think it would have been kind of a, uh, wow moment just because he's not on, I don't think he's on most fans radar. They probably don't know who Christian Taylor is, what he looks like or, or anything about his background, but he should be now. So you did a very good job of describing this absolutely insane play in one paragraph. So I'll just read it with 14 minutes left in the second quarter of a scoreless FCS game, the William Mary William and Mary tribe faced a second and goal to Delaware four. Hollis Mathis, a sophomore quarterback who was lined up in the right slot motions across the formation and stops behind the center, not necessarily under center behind center, a blue hen defender shifts over inside the box. And then the center snaps the ball through Mathis's legs to Darius Wilson, another William Mary quarterback who was lined up behind Martin in the behind Mathis in the shotgun. Wilson, this is the second quarterback, catches the snap, 
while Mathis, the first quarterback, darts right, and the defensive end chases him. Wilson, this is, I'm trying to keep track of everybody's here now, the, the second quarterback, Wilson, runs the speed option and pitches the ball to running back Bronson Yoder, who is lined up next to him. Yoder sprints to the left corner of the end zone for a touchdown as the Delaware defenders look baffled by what just happened. It reminded me, I'm going to go way back here, but that 2004 Utah team, the Urban Meyer, um, Dan Mullen as the OC team. Uh, remember, Alex Smith was the quarterback. They're playing Pitt in the bowl game. They, uh, you know, this was like the, the dawn of the spread option. Al, I don't remember. Okay, I'll just try to remember it as best I can. Alex Smith takes the shotgun snap. He rolls right. And then he's got the whole defense heading in that direction and just flips a shovel pass to the running back in the other direction. Yeah. A lot of times it was a tight end actually. And I I just remember watching the pit defenders playing because I wrote a story about his offense for SI and I'm like slowing it down and pausing. And you can just see the pit defenders like, Oh crap. What just happened? That's the same, very similar. uh, What you see the defense do here. Yeah. It was interesting. Cause I showed, I showed my wife this this morning after the story went up and you know, like what I used on the, in my tweet was actually the coach's film of it. What we have in the story is, is something from the radio call, but you can see the video pretty clearly, but so it's, it's two angles of it. And you know, on the tweet and she was like, I was like, did you see it? She was like, no. And you know, zoomed in, zoomed in. And I was like, Oh, and she was like, are you going to try to run this with, with your team? And I was like, uh, I don't think I'm going to try to run <laughs> I don't think that's going to be, that's going to be a lot to, 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 it's, but was, to manage. What was funny or sort of funny is um, one of the, the offensive line coach and both, he was like, yeah, let's just say the first time we started running it, you know, our, uh, our guy who was standing over, you know, you know, basically behind the center, um, needed an ice pack after that because he took the first snap right in the crotch. And they had to figure out. So you can see him kind of up on his tiptoes. So I don't think I'm ready to have a second or third grader shotgun snap through another kid's legs. I don't know if I want that 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 liability risk. All right, let's shift gears from William and Mary's crazy offense to the NFL draft. We're going to bring on our friend from The Athletic, Dane Brugler. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Stu, we are pleased to be joined by our guest. He is the athletics draft guru, Dane Brugler. Dane is already in Indy. I will get there in a few days. Um, if you don't follow Dane, you you really are missing out because even if you're not diehard draft person, his insight into college football is a must. Uh, just before we start, his Twitter handle is DP Brugler, B-R-U-G-L-E-R. Dane, thanks for joining us today on The Audible. No, of course. I'm excited for this. Long time listener of The Audible, so this will be a lot of fun. Uh, it will be. I appreciate you coming on. So we got a lot to get to, and I know Stu's going to want to jump you know, face first into the quarterbacks, and that's a good place to start this year. So I think just to get the news out of the way, um, the big physical big guys, especially from the SEC, in terms of Will Levis from Kentucky and and uh, Anthony Rich from Florida, they are going to be full go this week, right? But Bryce Young not throwing there? What's the word? That's right. Um, and I think the speculation is Bryce Young trying to put on as much weight as he possibly can, uh, you know, just to get over that 200-pound mark. Uh, and because of that, not going to be a full workout, wait till his pro day. I, not a big deal. Um, obviously, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. You better perform well at the pro day. You don't get a makeup. Um, whereas, uh, with Levis and, and Richardson and throw CJ Stroud in there as, as well, they're all going to be throwing here. And so they will have a chance to throw again at the pro day if they would like to, but you know, the Bryce young measurements, uh, that that's going to be a lot of the headlines and look, we know he's small. There's no way around it. Um, it, the last, over the last three or the last 25 years, there have been 301 quarterbacks drafted only two of those 301 have been below six foot and below 200 pounds. So we're talking about a complete outlier here. We obviously know what he did on the field. It's just, you know, how our team's going to feel about how that translates and the official measurements, you know, that that's something that will be stamped next to him for, for a long time. So he wants to get over that 200 pound mark and, you know, whether that ultimately should matter or not, that's just kind of the reality. To me, as a as somebody who watches these guys, you know, on the field, uh, college football wise, um, you know, it's it's to me, it's Bryce Young was was absolutely amazing to watch, and even this past season, maybe his stats weren't quite what they were the year before, but we also know he was working with, you know, he didn't have Jamison Williams, and and it seemed like he was almost carrying the team even more, um, but it has become lately harder to project. You know, I would I would have thought Tua would be by far the best quarterback from his class, and that hasn't obviously been the case. Jalen Hurts was a guy who wasn't necessarily viewed as an elite passer in college, and he's he's shining. So, you know, where are we now in terms of 
comparing Bryce Young and CJ Stroud, who were proven college standouts, what are the chances that a Will Levis or Anthony Richardson, who are much less proven but have you know physical traits, are going to end up going ahead ahead of those two guys? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and that's never more true than when it comes to quarterbacks. I don't think this is a year like we had, what, two years ago with Trevor Lawrence. He was the clear, no doubt about it, number one quarterback that year. And then everybody's order after that, talking about teams, was a little bit different. Some A lot had Zach Wilson as the second quarterback that year. Some were believers in Justin Fields. Some were believers in Trey Lance. Uh, Mac Jones had his, uh, his fans throughout the league. So I I think the order this year is going to be vastly different. And it's because you look at these quarterbacks they are all talented, but you can poke holes in each one of them. Bryce Young, obviously being a historical outlier and it's not the height. It's more so the build. It's that, that slightness to him. And he's a guy that, I mean, you guys know, will buy every extra half second that he can to let that route come open. He will, he welcomes the chaos. You know, he, he is, he's so good under pressure. He's so good with his vision. He's a point guard. And so he welcomes uh, that chaos to bear down on him uh, to go make a play. And in the NFL where everybody's just a little bit faster, even compared to sec defenses, uh, you know, can he in his body hold up, you know, is he going to be able to avoid some of those hits? And so that's the big question with him. C.J. Stroud had such a good career at Ohio State, um, but what do you make of his best game coming in his last game where, uh, you know, the first 27 games in Columbus, he had a grand total of one missed tackle forced. In that game alone, he had three. And so how do you reconcile the fact that he showed some movement, he showed some creativity, the ability to make off-schedule throws? That's what we wanted to see from him, you know, throughout his career, but he's just so hesitant to run. And it's not that he's a bad athlete. It's just he wasn't comfortable. But he showed some new things in that Georgia tape. Uh, even though it came in a loss, it was his best game. So how do you reconcile that? I, I think uh, uh, when I ask scouts that, I get different answers back. So that you know, that's where C.J. Stroud's a little, you know, really, they, teams really like him. But how many actually love him? And then with Richardson and Levis, these guys are, in a lot of ways, the prototype from size, speed, uh, the arm strength I and mean, the arm power is just ridiculous. And it'll be interesting seeing these guys throw in person. There, there's something about seeing quarterbacks throw in person. That's just different than the tape, seeing the ball explode off their hands. Um, and that's something that Levis and, and Richardson have a chance to show off here at Lucas oil stadium in Indianapolis, where onlookers are going to be wowed by the release and the way uh, the ball just uh, you know, with effortless velocity gets down the field. But more importantly, how's the pacing, the timing, the accuracy? So, you know, it's, this is the long answer to say, I, I think you're going to get different orders of how teams rank these quarterbacks, depending on on who you ask around the league. Um, and it'll be interesting when, as we get closer to see uh, if that changes at all, at all, do we have more of a consensus? Um, we're going to have some trade action in the top 10. There's no question about that. And it will be really interesting to see which teams prefer which quarterback. Dan, I wanted to, you know, there's a comparison I have, and I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's spot on, but like when I hear about people worried and I get why they're worried about the, I don't want to say frail, but like Mm -hmm. Russell Wilson's short quarterback, definitely not a small one. He's built more like a running back, right? And he's had, you know, what last year wasn't a great year, but he obviously has been an exceptional quarterback in the NFL. But when you have a guy like Bryce Young, one of the ones who's slight, who wasn't the biggest quarterback who had a really long career after having some injury issues, 
was Drew Brees. Now I went back and looked. Drew Brees actually weighed 213 pounds when he went through the combine process, which surprised me because he's not a big guy either. Mm-hmm. Um, he's obviously mobile, and you know, like when you said point guard, I think you used that reference, and I've seen that before. Like that kind of feels similar. Very, you know, sees it, you know, reacts well. Um, you know, he's you know, Drew Brees definitely wasn't as big as um, you know as Russell Wilson, and certainly some other quarterbacks. But I was like, oh, maybe that he could along the lines of that but i think when some people balk and i don't want to you know throw stew in this box yet but when they're like almost incredulous that nfl teams may fall in love with will levis or anthony richardson who are so you know for lack of a better word toolsy <laughs> than mm-hmm. other guys who've been more efficient and more successful in college but then the counter is well josh allen wowed people and some of us who covered college football you know, exclusively were like, what are you talking about? He wasn't that great against some of these teams. And the thing that I would caution people on when it comes to Will Levis and Anthony Richardson is, you know, Will Levis had, he didn't have Liam Cohen for a full year as as a, in 2021. Liam Cohen, you know, was there in the spring, but Will Levis showed up after the spring. So he had no spring. And then he got, uh, Liam Cohen goes back to the Rams and a new offensive coordinator comes in. They didn't have great skill talent, the offensive line, a bunch of those guys moved on. And so I think the lack of continuity hurt him some as well as, and I think you wrote about this today. Um, and I'll, you know, go back to it about the foot injury that he had in the second mm-hmm. half of the season. And this is a guy who's a really athletic, not just got a cannon for an arm, but he moves really well. If you remember when he threw, got thrown into the lineup against Ohio State, um, he was giving them problems with his legs. Anthony Richardson also, you know, new quarterback coach last year when the Billy Napier staff came in. And he really struggled with consistency. He looked great in the opener, and then he looked very shaky at times after that. But I think one thing that you know I circle back to on this is Jalen Hurts, as terrific as he's been everywhere he's been, especially, and he's probably outshined people what most people were expecting of him in the NFL. This is the first time he's had the same offensive coordinator in back-to-back years since high school like even when he was at Alabama certainly at Oklahoma and I don't know if if uh, if people um in general give that enough weight to see the consistency with coaches and so I think that I think that is going to add into this I mean if you were and I know that we're jumping the gun but if if you were um an evaluator like, how confident are you in, like, are there are there red flags with these guys, not character-wise, but in terms of, like, consistency, accuracy with those two big um, SEC quarterbacks with, with the terrific arms and the great athleticism? Well, let's start with Levis, who, and I think this is a great example of you have to separate what are the reasons and what are the excuses. And I, I think you laid out perfectly why, uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of his shortcomings this past year, or maybe why he didn't live up to some of the hype. Uh, there are reasons b- behind that, not just excuses. Uh, you know, Wondell Robinson becoming a second round pick and, and you know, a, a brand new uh, receivers. He had three offensive linemen drafted. Uh, you mentioned Liam Cohen, the foot injury. I mean, he's getting shots in his foot before every single game. Um, only missed Chris Rodriguez missed a bunch of games early on. Missed the first four. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and Will Levis as a starter, he still went seventeen and seven. 
at, at Kentucky, and, and that's not easy to do. And I know, you know people uh, are you know debate whether quarterback win loss records is an actual stat, but you know what NFL teams consider it a stat. A stat, so it's relevant. Um, and, and so you know for him to have that type of success at, at, at Kentucky, where you know not known for necessarily being an explosive offense. It is something that, uh, you know, is they're going to be talking about in, in war rooms as they stack these boards and try and figure it out. He's a lot of the intangibles, a lot of the, you know, the toughness, the intelligence. Um, he's got one of the highest wonderlook scores this year, um, you know, playing through injuries, the competitive nature that he has. They all talk, the coaches, uh, whether it's Cohen, whether it's um, it was stooped. They, they all talk about, you know, when he came here to, uh, to Lexington, he was the, he was the guy, he was immediately uh, a team captain, someone that was uh, really well liked in the locker room. So there's a lot of things intangible wise that I think, you know, kind of check the boxes. It's just the biggest thing with him is you wish he saw things a little bit faster. And it, it reminds me a little bit of Carson Wentz coming out, both the good and the bad where has size has movement, um, it's just, you wish he saw things a little bit faster and how is that going to, at the next level, when everything gets a lot faster, can he speed up his clock? Um, that that's, that's going to be the big question with him. And then with Anthony Richardson, this is going to be a big week for him in Indianapolis. And, you know, we already mentioned how he's going to wow during the on-field drills, but specifically the interview process, uh, which, you know, we won't have access to, uh, obviously, but when teams put them on the board and, you know, just have a better understanding of what he knows and what he doesn't know. That's going to be a big factor here and where he's actually drafted it. Looking at quarterbacks in the NFL, it's hard to find a ton of quarterbacks who had fewer than 400 pass attempts in college. Uh, it just, it, we don't have a great track record of those guys. Now we saw it two years ago with Trey Lance, uh, but you know, that was COVID related. And, you know, obviously we haven't really seen much of Trey Lance the past two years for various circumstances, so with Anthony Richardson, uh, just in this week, the interview process uh, on the whiteboard, teams going through tape with him, just to get a better sense for, you know, how does he read coverages? Uh, how does he understand protections? Where is he in his mental development? Because Anthony Richardson, to me, is not a guy that you draft and then just sit on the bench. Uh, I don't think he's going to get a, 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 like that much better doing that. His, his issues are mostly accuracy. Uh, you, you watch him on one snap and he looks, he looks pinpoint. He, he's doing, he's working the field. He's using placement. Um, but the next snap, it just all falls apart. And so he needs reps. You want him on the field to get those reps and you have to, you're going to take your lumps. You're gonna have to take your medicine um, as a rookie, as he works through the mistakes. Uh, but understanding what he knows, what he doesn't know. So, you know, whether or not you can put him out there, um, you know, only 13 starts in, in college and had only six wins. He had a below 500, um, you know, winning percentage. And so there's a lot of things working against both these guys, but the talent is, is just so tantalizing that, you know, teams, they're going to bet on those traits because that's, that's what teams do. It's traits over production. They're going to bet on those traits and say, we can get more out of him. But the interviews, that'll be a big part of that this week. Dane, one quick thing on, on, on that. You mentioned the limited reps and, you know, limited number of starts. And this is an unfair comparison, so I don't want to go there just because the guy, to me, is arguably the greatest college player I ever saw. But Cam Newton started, mm. started very, you know, one season at Auburn. He had less than 300 passes in his year at Auburn plus his two years at Florida. Um, he's a wow athlete too. Now I don't think Anthony Richardson is quite as tall 
Bruce, can you take take a guess where Anthony Richardson was ranked in SEC passer rating last season? I don't know, tenth, eleventh behind Brady Cook. Like Cam Newton was had the most dominant individual season possibly in the history of college football, and and we're talking about a guy who uh, threw for twenty five hundred and forty nine yards, seventeen touchdowns, nine interceptions. Um, what I want to bring up is two other SEC quarterbacks who had far better seasons than either Will Levis or Anthony Richardson, but are not considered high round picks as far as I can tell. Hendon Hooker, who was absolutely dominant until he tore his ACL. And of course, America's favorite quarterback, Stetson Bennett. Yeah, and Hooker, obviously the ACL injury, that that just throws a, a wrinkle in all this. Um, you know, I thought before the injury, he had a chance to be a top 50, top 60 pick. Now it, it's kind of up in the air because he's an older player. He's already uh, 25 years old. Uh, so, you know, w- what is he, when is he going to be able to uh, go this year? Is it not until training camp? So, you know, basically you're probably not going to get him on the field uh, maybe until the second half of this season. Um, you know, what, where does he factor in? Uh, so there's a lot of questions about just when he's going to be ready, but then also, uh, you know, the offense that he played in, you know, it, it stems from that art browse system where it's a lot of spacing. It's a lot of fast tempo. Um, you know, you're, it's designed to put defenses in conflict to make it easier on the quarterback. And so those are the questions that Hendon Hooker will have to answer this week. And then obviously making sure the, the knee's okay. The medical teams, uh, they, they look at the knee, give a thumbs up, say no long-term damage. That's something that will be uh, important for him. And then with Stetson Bennett, you know, choosing to not go to the, the, the senior bowl was an interesting choice. You know, he mentioned how he just went through a grueling season, just you know, won a national title. And uh, meanwhile, he, he got arrested the same weekend as uh, the senior bowl, which wasn't a great look. But uh, Stetson Bennett, another older guy, he's already 25 uh, and a half. Um, and he's, he's undersized. He's going to be smaller than, uh, Bryce young, uh, when, when he comes in and weighs in, um, average arm, but a, a good athlete. I mean, he's someone that is draftable. Um, but I, I think that teams are realistic about what he offers to your team. He's someone that you would welcome into your quarterback room, but when push comes to shove and, you know, a lot of teams only carry two quarterbacks, it, it, it might be tougher for Bennett to earn a, a spot you know, on the active roster, but you know, he's going to have a chance based off of how he played the last few years. And with his former offensive coordinator uh, now in Baltimore, uh, and that's a quarterback depth chart, maybe in flux a little bit, that could be an interesting spot for him. All right. Let's uh, move off of quarterbacks. And, and to me, the most, one of the most intriguing things with the draft always is which of these running backs who's going to end up in like the fourth or the fifth or the sixth round will end up rushing for like 1400 yards. Because I feel like this happens. Yes. Derek Henry won a Heisman and he's been ultra productive and, you know, Saquon now that he's healthy has been, was fantastic this past year for the giants, but there's always the, you know, the Aaron Jones or Kenneth Walker, who was really productive at Michigan state, but just had a terrific rookie year and Tyler Algier ran for a thousand yards and and you see that, you know, then there's the Austin Ecklers and Damian Pierce, who was way better in the NFL than he certainly was for Dan Mullen at Florida. So what I want to do is give you guys, and I want to throw out two people when I say throw out, meaning like we're not putting these guys in Bijan Robinson, who was, who we would expect to be the first pick in the jet first running back to go. And then Jamar Gibbs um, from Alabama. But I want to name, I'm going to throw out, 10 running backs, 10 
Jeez, oh, Pete's. Oh, come on now. This is what we're doing. I got my pen. Well, and, and, and I'm glad you, you're doing this because I think between picks 50 and 150, that's going to be the strength at running back in this draft. I, you, Robinson and Gibbs, they're going to be top 50 picks. But then, uh, and this is what might, might hurt Bijan and Jameer right, Gibbs is the depth. Insane. All right, so I'm gonna. I want you to rank the the of these ten, each of you, who you think will be the four best, most productive NFL running backs. Now, obviously, some of that will will end up on circumstance where they may end up, but I think any one of these ten guys, and probably more than one, I could see as a legit thousand yard back and probably go to some Pro Bowls. Okay, in no particular order. Sean Tucker, Syracuse, Deuce Vaughn. K-State, Kendra Miller, TCU, Evan Hull from Stu's alma mater, Mo Ibrahim from Minnesota, Devon A-Chain from A&M, Chase Brown, Illinois, Zach Charbonnet, UCLA, and Travis Dye, USC. Dane, since uh, Stu is going to kind of process all this, Stu, don't cheat off Dane. Dane, give me the four guys you think of that pack will be the most productive in the NFL? I would start with A-Chain. Um, just that special speed that he has uh, is really something that uh, will uh, translate to the next level, and we'll see it hopefully this week. A-Chain might be the pick to run the fastest 40 uh, at the Combine this year. Um, Charbonnet it would be next for me. He's he's kind of the opposite where he doesn't have that burst. He doesn't have that speed, but his vision, his patience, his balance, his pass catching, it, it, it's it's all there. If you were a better athlete, we'd be talking about him as you know Nick Chubb. Uh, so Charbonnet, I think, is in that mix. Uh, Kendra Miller, I would go with him next. Uh, you know, six foot two twenty, um, has some speed to him. Uh, he was, you know, I think that a lot was made with um, uh, Zach Evans when he left TCU last year. All Kendra Miller did was step up and uh, had like thirteen hundred yards rushing. So I think Miller would be next for me, and then. Um, see, like I like Deuce Vaughn, but I, I think he's just more of a complimentary back. And if we're picking who's going to run for a thousand yards, I'd probably go with Sean Tucker, uh, from Syracuse who, um, you know, is a, another track guy He's going to run really well here this week. I, I think he's going to factor in really well in the passing game, uh, in the NFL. And he's not going to be, a, or he won't go in the top 100 picks. He'll be available fourth, fifth round and could be one of those steals that we're talking about at running back. Before Stu answers, why won't he go that high? I'm, I was a little puzzled by he was super productive. He has really good wheels. I'm curious, like, what what is keeping him from going in the top, you know, 75 picks? Yeah, I, I think that I, one of the biggest things I, I look for at running back is that contact balance, the ability to – because in the NFL, you're going to take on contact and you have to be able to – it's just not going to be those open holes all the time. And so speed is great. The vision to find those holes is great, but you have to be able to generate uh, yards through contact. And I just, and he didn't do that consistently. Um, and that's, I think that's the biggest worry with him, but you know, he has vision, he has burst. Um, he's more of an explosive one cut, get up the field type of guy. So, you know, and this is, he's a product of a really, uh, like I said before, just a loaded uh, running back group in that, you know, that third, fourth, fifth rounds. And he's going to fall because of it, but that'll be great value for a team that's going to be able to be patient and wait for a guy like that. All right, Stu, the floor is yours. Yeah, my list isn't that different. Um, you know, A-Chain, 
is fits in that mold to me. You mentioned Damian Pierce, like a guy who is just really fast, wasn't necessarily a workhorse by any means in college, often, you know, maybe a 15 touch kind of guy. And then they get into the NFL and blow everybody away. So he's one. Sean Tucker's one. I feel like Cam Brown was a, a could be a workout. Chase, work, Brown. Chase Brown. Sorry, Chase Brown could be a work a workhorse type guy. He certainly was this past year for Illinois. I love Deuce Vaughn, and I get it. He's short. So was Darren Sproles. And Bruce, where you tripped me up was, what's more important, thousand-yard rusher or Pro Bowl? Because Darren Sproles went to Pro Bowls, but he went primarily as a return guy. Like, couldn't Deuce Vaughn have a similar trajectory? Darren Sproles is a lot thicker than Deuce Vaughn, though. I, I love Deuce Vaughn, too. I'm not. I'm just like, I think because the, they went to the same school and they're the same height, but I feel like... Correct me if I'm wrong, Dane, but I just feel like one's a little bit built differently at this point. Yeah, I mean, he was. Uh, I mean, not not too much. There's probably only maybe ten pounds difference between the two, but it, we, we you could see Sproles consistently break contact, and where I don't, you don't really see that with with Deuce Vaughn. Once he encounters contact, he slows down considerably. But I think as a gadget back, um, you know, that's something that you know he could really thrive in the right role in the NFL. And I think you know with Devin A. Chain he's listed at 185 and it's hard to find running backs in the NFL below 190 pounds. But, you know, if you get to the above 190, that's where we've seen guys be, you know, drafted in the first round. Chris Johnson was in that range, CJ Spiller, uh, Javid best. So a chain's weight and his body type this week at the combine will be something that scouts are paying very close attention to. And he, remember he was a, a track guy at, at Texas A&M. So he didn't necessarily, I don't, I don't think, try to max out his weight. He was comfortable at 185 uh, and then, you know, immediately switching uh, over to track as soon as football was done. So now that he's football only, uh, you know, is he going to be able to put on weight? What does his body look like? That That's something that'll be a big storyline here because he has all the talent to be a top 50, top 60 pick. Yeah, Deuce Vaughn, 88-yard um, touchdown against Alabama in the Sugar Bowl, 1,558 yards last season. Would always... What always um, impressed me about him is just the consistency. He was, you know, I'm looking at it now. Like he had very, he had one game against uh, Iowa State where he got shut down. But other than that, very productive every week for the past two seasons. But I get it. It's a different game. It's a different league. It's a different speed. And just to be clear, Dane, way more qualified than me to project which of these guys is going to succeed at the next next level. Uh, you touched on this Dane a minute ago with, with a chain and his track background. It's always a fun thing about pre- trying to predict who will be the fastest guy to run in Indy. Um, this, if you were to look, who would you be your three odds on favorites and will anybody get close to the magic four, two flat number? I don't know that we're going to have anybody in the four twos this year. Maybe, um, you know, once these guys, you know, they, they train so well for this now um, that it, it wouldn't be a complete surprise. I do think a chains in that, in that top three, um, what he did track in high school and then in college is just remarkable. He had a 20.2200 meters uh, back in March, which is remarkable. Um, and, and I think it's important to point out too, that this is a football player first and they actually had to convince him to do track in high school and said, look, you're just, you're too fast. We, we need you to do, do track. It'll benefit you. And, um, he's just kind of gone all along doing track. Meanwhile, he is a football first guy. 
Um, I, yeah, I would mention Christian Gonzalez, another guy who um, I, I'm super high on. He, he's number five overall in my on my uh, draft board product too in the state. Yeah, of exactly. The North Texas, the Colony area. Um, you know, he's he's got the bloodlines. He, he's got fascinating bloodlines. His dad is a former professional basketball player. He's six nine. He's got two older sisters uh, who are uh, very accomplished track athletes. Uh, the one of David Blau, David Blau's yep. wife, people remember Melissa. Yeah, she she ran in the Olympics for I believe Tokyo Columbia. Olympics. Yep, yeah. exactly. That, that the, their dad is from Colombia, so she was able to have dual citizenship. But you know, Christian, he got some of those genes as well. Uh, he, he was a big time high school sprinter. Um, you know, the the triple jump, and I was always told, you know, the triple jump. That's that's what shows the most athleticism if you're translating from track uh, to the, to, uh, to the football field. So Christian Gonzalez should be one of those guys that really stands out. Um, I, you know, Akili Ringo is going to be just really impressive. Six two two fifteen, shredded, and he's going to test really well. Um, but I'm going to, let's go to a wide receiver. Um, you know, I, Quentin Johnson will put on a show. I mean, you, you, you laid it out before the season on your freaks list. Uh, I hope Jalen Hyatt from Tennessee is able to work out here at the combine because his speed, I mean, that, that's why we're talking about him as a potential first round pick is that ability to take the top off a of defense. Uh, just that's the threat of his speed um, is special, but a guy that I think is um, under the radar a little bit is Tyler Scott from Cincinnati. Um, he reminds me so much of Tyler Lockett coming out of college. And you know, speaking of Kansas state guys, um, Tyler Scott, high school running back, uh, but he was a big time track guy. He was ranked top 10 in the nation coming out of high school uh, in track. And he has made that transition a wide receiver. He was really good for Cincinnati this past year. Uh, not the biggest guy. He'll probably be around 5'10", uh, 185 pounds, but the speed is outstanding. Um, and he, ha- he, ha- he had 14 touchdowns in his career. He averaged 45 yards per touchdown because that's what he, he was such a big play threat down the field. I think that's something that will show up here at Lucas Oil. All right, Dean. Well, um, there's a, there's a lot to digest. There's a lot to, I look forward to the headlines out of there. There's going to be somebody that we uh, didn't even mention on this podcast. That's going to end up being one of the stars at the combine. I'm sure there'll be somebody who disappoints and follow Dane and, and, and follow his coverage on the athletic. Um, we actually have a small army of writers from the company that are there at the combine, but uh, obviously he's your guy for the, the broader um, NFL draft expertise. We appreciate you coming on the audible. Thanks Dane. Look forward to seeing you in a few days. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. We're going to dip into the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Bruce, my good friend, Russell Brandt from Austin, Texas. Do you remember him? He was the guy you stiffed on the Zingermans, right? Did not stiff him. And here's what he said. My daughter and I visited Ann Arbor this weekend, saw the Michigan-Michigan State basketball game, and finally got to use our Zingermans gift card. Wow. The wait for a sandwich there is long, but still well worth it. See, I delivered. I'm glad. By the way, I watched some Notre Dame-Michigan hockey. It was riveting at the last. It went into overtime. You know what we're starting to watch in my household for the first time? The first time I've watched it. It's basketball. SEC gymnastics. Madeline, my daughter, she does gymnastics now. And you turn on, um, like the SEC network on Friday shows a bunch of these gymnastics. By the way, gymnastics is huge in the SEC. Uh, we turned on Missouri Auburn. Now, granted, SUNY Lee is on Auburn, but it, the place looked that it wasn't like the whole basketball arena was sold out, but it was a big crowd and it's entertaining. It moves fast. Um, good for kids. Um, 
Is the 2024 Michigan-Texas game in Ann Arbor or Austin? It was originally in Austin, but they switched it a while ago. And now I read based on UT's SEC move, it has switched back. I know the answer to this, Bruce, and it actually has a direct tie into one of your two employers. The Michigan-Texas 2024 game was supposed to be in Austin. It is now in Ann Arbor. And do you know why? Because Max Olson... I'm assuming wanted some Axel's and Andy Staples wanted some kind of barbecue junket. Is that why is that why it got switched? Or is it my it got, other? Sw- it got switched in the opposite direction. Maybe they want Zingerman's. Um, it's because it, it part one of the um trade condition or whatever you want to call one of the conditions of the getting OU and, and UT out a year early was because you know Fox doesn't have much of an incentive there. Why would they want? Those two flagship schools, you know, they owe you to to get out of the uh, uh, Big Twelve, which they have the rights to, and go to the SEC, which they do not. And so, one of the trade offs was moving that game to Ann Arbor so that Fox will be able to show it because they own Big Ten rights. And so, now that that game is in a Big Ten stadium in 2024, um, they're still getting a Texas game. You know, even though they'll be in the SEC by then, how about how about that horse trading? That's exactly that's a good way to describe it. Horse trading. It reminds me of Joe Buck getting traded for the uh, Penn State Purdue game. Yeah. All right. Uh, what else we got in the mailbag? We've got Brian Johannes in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, since since Wisconsin hired Luke Fickle and brought in Phil Longo, the Badgers have been the talk of football, and it seems every major college football personality has jumped all in on the Badgers and Fickle and Longo. Uh, among the best hires. But am I right to be cautious about this hire? The air raid has mainly worked in warm weather climates, and we've seen Nebraska under Scott Frost try to bring a warm weather offense to the Midwest, and it did not have success. Wisconsin made its hay developing massive offensive linemen from the state and the surrounding areas that beat up teams. Now you're hoping those huge lines are going to be able to drop back and pass protection on a regular basis. Are they going to be able to attract receiver talent to Madison on a regular basis? So I am one of the people who's very high on Lou Fickle. I would also admit that this is going to be a huge, huge uh, transitional, I mean, a huge schematic and cultural change for that program. What say you? Uh, I would point out that the origins of the air raid, as with, with, with Mike Leach and Hal Mummy, was at Iowa Wesleyan. That is definitely not a balmy place, hmm. right? Um, Leach also went up to Pullman which can get pretty cold and grisly and they threw it all over the place. So I get the concern, but um, lots of places, you know, when um, Joe Tiller was at Wyoming, that's, that's one of the coldest places. They threw it all over the place, Washington state with Mike price. And before that with Dennis Erickson threw it all over the place. So I, that uh, it's a fair point. I don't know if I would agree with it, just given the track record of some of these places. And certainly BYU gets cold and Lavelle Edwards is, you know, when he was the head coach there and they were, th- you know, they've had so many good quarterbacks. I think we've seen a lot of places that that aren't exactly Florida ha- flourish with an air raid. Or yeah, I don't think it's about the weather at all. I think it's about, you know, Leach's version of the air raid is to throw the ball 85 times a game. But as you know, many of his disciples have made it much more balanced case in point in 2020. If you remember this season, when Phil Longo was at UNC, they had the backfield duo of Michael Carter and Javante Williams 
who ran, who both ran for over a thousand yards and Michael Carter averaged almost eight yards per carry and Javante Williams averaged 7.2 yards per carry. So he has said that, that, you know, they have, he's inheriting by the way, uh, Braylon Allen, you know, uh, all big 10 caliber running back. He's still going to run the ball. So to me, it's not about weather. It's about what style of air rate is it? And it's certain, it sure seems to me that he is, you know, he has a style much like Dana Holgerson and others where air rate is more about um, formations and play calls than it is percentage of, of plays you pass. Yeah. And I, I think that definition varies. I mean, Sonny Dykes talks about it as air raid being more of a mentality than anything else. And guys, guys adjust with the talent they have. Right. So, you know, Leach had the most purest form of the air raid, whereas I think Dana morphed from it the most. Lincoln Riley had, you know, kept a lot, some, but, you know, they ran the heck out of it when he had Bill Biedenboe and all the GT counter stuff that they became really famous for at OU. So I would expect that they will have a pretty um, potent running game in Madison, just like always. Still a big change, though. Like, I think it'll work, but if they go five and seven next year and struggle on offense. Um, it'll probably be because it was just such a big adjustment from what they were doing for the last 30 years. Um, here's a question from Craig in Detroit. Hey guys, Florida has now lost three defensive assistants to the NFL in the last week. Add that to the changes in Miami and South Bend. And it seems like year two coaches are experiencing a lot of big staff changes. Do you think this is a big deal or just part of the process? I don't think it's an, ins I don't, I don't think it's insignificant because you're basically hitting the reset button. And I think I've felt like this for a while that like the most important thing that a new coach does is what kind of staff they have put together. And if you are shuffling the deck, whether it's by your choice or by their choice, why people leave, and it could be a combination. I just think it's harder to get, um, to kind of hit the ground running and get everybody on track with the same message. You already have enough um, um, transition now with the transfer portal and having different people come into your locker room. But if you don't get it right, um, I think it puts you into a deeper hole. You know, the places that really excel are the places that have had a lot of continuity. Um, it doesn't mean it can't work. I mean, look, we were just talking about Leach in the air raid a minute ago. Leach was on Bob Stoops' first staff. It, it went well enough where Leach got hired within a year to go to Texas Tech and run his own program. And then OU won the national title right after that. So, but the, I think the challenge, and you know, we've talked about Miami before, is the continuity. Like I think Miami's probably gonna have even, you know, still some more staff turnover before they get into spring football. And spring football is like a week and a half away. That's a quite a juggling act. You mentioned Florida. Um, those are some good young coaches who moved on to the NFL. And I think it's, it's, you know, I, you and I both, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. We both like the Billy Napier hire at Florida, right? I did. We did, but it's not going well so far. It's, it's been shaky a little bit. Yes. Um, do you want to, what other first what other second year coaches do we want to, do you want to like, cause you're the big grades guy. 
Do you want some? Well, mullet? can I just ask you a pick a question real quick? Does it seem like so Florida? He's not wrong. Like they had three defensive assistants leave for NFL within like 48 hours of each other. Well, they also had it wasn't just the I don't know if they had three on the defensive side, but um Kerry Colbert, the receivers coach, and Will Piegler, the tight ends coach, they left to the NFL too. So I know that the defense- Oh yeah, you're right. I it's it's even more than I just suggested. Um anecdotally it feels to me like like we're almost at spring camp you know it's going to be march 1st on wednesday stanford tavita pritchard who's been there forever who um troy taylor had said was going to you know remain on as the qb coach is leaving for the washington commanders like it just seems like there are more assistants anecdotally who you know you think by the early february your coaching staff is set guys who had either taken a job or, or or soon to be staying in their job who are bolting for the NFL at frankly kind of a late date. It's definitely, you know, we've had this talk offline amongst ourselves as writers at the athletic. And I, I do think it's that way. Um, now there's some outliers to it. Like Matt rule hired a largely, you know, college heavy staff and they, they're a bunch of those guys are now back when he was in the NFL, a bunch of those guys are back at Nebraska and you had Joe Judge's staff was a lot of college guys with the Giants and a bunch of those guys are back in college. But yeah, it's definitely a lot of guys. And I agree, it's happening late. It used to be like right after the, the official signing day of that early February, you'd see movement. Now you're seeing movement, you know, deep going on. And I think there's all sorts of reasons for it. And um, not one particular thing more necessarily to pin it on. Um, but I think it only is going to make it harder when you see this kind of shuffling going on because lack of continuity is a real big deal in college football. So what was the question you were going to ask about second year coaches? Yeah, I wanted to see of the coaches and I don't have your grades up from 2021, but I would be curious if you get, if you looked at it and say, okay, these are the three I want to mulligan on. Can we pause and (laughs) do this? Okay. I'll look it up. I think this would be this would be good. But I think that you have to be really careful to read. Too. I mean, there have been plenty of coaches who had a rough first year and then went on to be fine. So I would be cautious about jumping to conclusions about guys just yet. But I'm okay, pulling it I, up I, now. Like I gave Billy Napier an A. I would I would say I'm not feeling great about that right now. It's just been it's been rocky on a lot of fronts. So what would you give him now in if in retrospect? Not off the uh, first year, but just like, where would you give him a B minus? What would you feel like about that? I think that? I would just say a B for now, because I'm not ruling the guy out. Um, Mario, you gave an A. What do you give him now? I'm only going to downgrade that one to an A minus. I still think he's the right guy for the job. But I, I wonder how much of the, where in the situation where he, you know, he's firing guys after the first season, you know, when you first get that job, it is a sprint to, to, to do all the thing, you know, hire a staff, um, but he doesn't first recruiting class. He, he is the most meticulous in his process. And so I that's, just, yeah, it's true. But I just think guys screw it up sometimes. Like they didn't, you know, they do need that mulligan. I gave Brent Venables an a minus and, and then I predicted his team to not do so great in the first year. So that may seem like a contradiction, but I always thought the first year would be rough, but he'd be better from there. And I'm sticking with that. Is there someone on here who you you're looking at the list? 
Who's somebody I oversold or undersold based on the first season? Oh, I see one. I see one too. It's a neighbor, old neighbor of mine, who I think definitely deserved, may have deserved coach national coach of the year honors. I did not see this coming, but Jim Mora did an amazing job at UConn, which was a dismal program. You gave him a C plus. I don't think, honestly, I don't think that was like knowing what we knew and what he was getting himself into. I was like, yeah, Stu's not off his rocker on that. No. Now, remember, Jim Mora had a great start at UCLA, and then it petered out. So I'll upgrade it to a B, but I'm not I'm not going drastically one way or the other based off one season. The one I thought you were going to say mm-hmm. was uh, Kalen DeBoer. Washington, Kalen DeBoer, B-, minus, and all he does in the first year is go out and win a – take a bad team and, and lead it to 11-win season. Yeah. Um, Tony Elliott's another one where you gave him a B, which is okay. I don't know. I would imagine some Virginia fans might be a little leery of this hire, you know, after the start, but it's early. Can we revisit this after year two of these coaches' tenures? Absolutely do that. I think we're we're rushing to some conclusions on this. As always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Bruce, have fun at the combine this week, and we'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.